0: 1 Samuel tonight, chapter 16 is where we find ourselves. And if you're here this evening without a Bible, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And if you find yourself here without a Bible, we certainly want you to have one to follow along with us. There are men coming up the aisle right now. Just raise your hand up; they will spot you and get a Bible uh, into your hands. And we want everybody to not only hear the Word of God, but we want them also to be able to read it with your own eyes. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? It is amazing uh, the spirituality of Samuel. You would think that after all of the nonsense that he had watched uh, Saul do and all the potential of his life that he had just frittered away because of his willful disobedience to God's Word and his unwillingness to take the importance of obedience seriously in his life that he would have just said, I just want to wash my, don't ever bring that guy's name up again. I don't want to hear it the rest of my life. But the failure of Saul really, really broke Samuel's heart. And he's mourning for, for, uh, for Saul. And the failure of Saul, the, what, he, what he saw in him, what he could have been. Again, Saul could have been one of the great heroes in Israel's history. If he had just simply been obedient to what God called him to do. And so he mourned so long for that the Lord finally comes in and interrupts him and tells him, that's enough, you're going to have to move on from this. You know, this is very, very real. Because the whole Bible is real. But this is a real uh, situation. You think about about, uh, Samuel and all that he had uh, seen. All of the disappointment that he had seen in his Christian life. I mean, he's seen the failure of Eli, his mentor, He's seen the hypocrisy in all of Eli's sons who were priests. Um, he had to live with the hypocrisy and the covetousness and disrespect of his own sons toward the Lord. And he watches an entire nation turn their back on God and, and demand a human king as if they could have a better king than the king of kings and the Lord of lords that we've just sung about. You think about it, and then he comes here with Saul, and he sees the failure of Saul. And I'll tell you, for, all you have to do is just walk with the Lord for a few years before you come to realize, you know, how few, I don't know how few in terms of percentages, but how few people begin the walk, and then they walk it faithfully all the way to the end and so often we can become discouraged by how many casualties there are on the left and on the right and we look at it and it can begin to wipe us out and what difference is my life making and, and, uh, and, and all of these kind of things and none of that is our issue God comes to Samuel here and he says listen in essence Saul makes his choices, Saul has, does what he does I've called you to be faithful to what I've called you to be faithful to, even if nobody else in the whole world is faithful to me. And so he needed this little rebuke from the Lord and this reminder. Now you leave that behind now. My plan is uninterrupted by the faithfulness or the lack of faithfulness by Saul. We will move on to what comes next. And this is what I want you to be in the middle of And so he said to him, Fill your horn with oil, and go, I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And uh, so, go to Bethlehem, the next king, I want you to anoint him with oil, a symbol of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to move on with the next king. And Samuel said how can I go if Saul hears me going to anoint the next king he is going to uh, kill me and uh, of course in the ancient world even even today it's always a hazardous thing to anoint a king when there's already a king and especially when the king is as suspicious as Saul is it would have been viewed as treason and I think that I don't think that uh, Samuel is looking here supremely at listen if Saul finds out I'm going over to anoint the next king of Israel he's going to kill me Samuel has put his life at risk over and over again by confronting this madman Saul who is the king but it doesn't make sense to Saul uh, to to Samuel because if I go and anoint him king and Saul finds out that I've anointed uh, David, he doesn't know what's going to be David, but anoint David of the family of Jesse. The first thing that this guy's going to do is he's going to go in and he's going to kill the whole family and he's going to kill David. This is how paranoid and crazy he is at this point in time. So it doesn't look like it can, it, it can add up and work. And so he's got some questions in his uh, his mind here. And so the Lord responds to him and says, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Uh, Let people know that's the reason you come to Bethlehem. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one that I name to you. Now, this creates a problem for some people because it looks like the Lord is telling Samuel to be deceptive, if necessary, about the true intent of his uh, mission. And deception is something that the Lord doesn't uh, really operate in and so uh, it looks like the Lord is saying listen go ahead alright I see the problem I didn't see that boy even I've got a blind spot thank you Samuel for pointing that out you're right they're going to go there they'll kill the whole group of you so let's um let's get you to take a heifer and go make a sacrifice there in Bethlehem uh, to me because everybody in the world knows that Saul doesn't have a spiritual bone in his body and if he hears that you're going over to Bethlehem to offer a sacrifice he will uh, offer up a collective yawn and won't even care about it he won't even get his interest uh, at all and so it, it looks like something like this might be happening but that's not what's happening here even if this is kind of the way that the conversation went down, secrecy isn't always the same as deceit. Uh, One thing I never try, if I ever say it to you, you know that I correct myself. But one thing I never try to say to people is, well, to be completely honest with you. Because that intimates that with you I'm being completely honest. With everybody else, I kind of lie. You know, man's got to do what he's got to do, you know. I mean, even the kingdom and stuff. This is a bad place, this fallen world. So I try never to say to be, you know, to be completely honest with you. But I do say oftentimes to people, well, to be completely open with you. There's a difference between honesty and openness. We're called as Christians to always be honest with everyone but we don't have to necessarily be completely open to everyone. We don't tell everyone everything we know about every situation. And so it isn't deceitful to just reveal what needs to be revealed as necessary to the person that we're, we're talking to. And uh, so... The, you know, here is uh, God wasn't telling Samuel to lie about his intentions there in, in Bethlehem. He really uh, did offer a sacrifice there, but the anointing of the new king was to be a secret affair. It wasn't to be made public for a long time. And so all of that kind of thing adds up. Now, the way that I like to read this is I like to view Samuel's question in verse 2 as an interruption of what God was telling him which then God continues in, Uh, verse 3 and then the whole thing flows very nicely and notice where the Lord says in verse 1 for I've provided myself a king among his sons if Samuel had never interrupted him the Lord would have then said take a heifer with you and say I have come to sacrifice to the Lord invite Jesse to the sacrifice I'll show you what you shall do and you shall anoint from me the one that I name to you and so here you have an interruption that interrupts the flow God patiently waits for him to finish his question and then just uh, finishes saying what he intended to say all along God is not afraid of the power of Saul he could take Saul out in a second he can take anybody out in a second and the time would come when it would serve his purposes to allow uh, Saul to die so he wasn't afraid of Saul in the situation so Samuel did what the Lord said to him he went to Bethlehem And the elders of the town trembled when he came and said, Do you come peaceably? How many of you are like this? Don't shout out or raise your hand. We'll do this in the privacy of our heart. How many of you, when you hear somebody, that somebody wants to meet with you and they're kind of in a supervisor position, you think the worst and work your way back. Okay, what's the world's worst thing that he could be wanting to talk to me about, she could want to be talking to me about? Then you'll begin to work your way back. Apparently, S- Samuel did not go to Bethlehem very often. So, this was weird. What have we done wrong? Takes me all the way back to Irene M. Snow's school, elementary school in Napa, California. Mr. Templeton, the principal. My good friend, Mr. Templeton the principal, who I saw regularly, and then Mr. Laughlin, who I saw regularly in junior high. I'd become a little bit better at deceit by high school and was able to escape those kind of, of uh, appointments. And so, here they are, they think the worst, and you've all heard, I'm sure, the pessimist uh, motto, blessed are those who expect nothing, for they shall not be disappointed. So they just think the worst here, and... And, uh, and, and ask him the question. Have you come peaceably or are you going to hammer us? And he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord sanctify yourself and come with me to the sacrifice and then he consecrated David and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice and so it was when they came that he looked at Eliab who was the oldest of Jesse's sons because he's thinking one of these guys is going to be the king I've got all this oil that's a physical symbol of the Holy Spirit that's going to be poured out on him by God as a king and uh, so Eliab comes by, and, and Saul takes, Samuel takes one look at him and says, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Here is Eliab, and he's probably tall, dark, and handsome again, just like Saul was. And, and Samuel looks and says, That's a king. I mean, look at his stature. Look at the air that he has. Look at the nobility. Surely the Lord's anointed, the next king of Israel, is standing before me. That's very very funny. The Lord goes on here and he says to Samuel, "Don't look at his appearance or his physical stature, so he was good looking, he was tall, because I have refused him, for the Lord does not see as man sees. He doesn't appraise the way men appraise. For man looks not at the outward appearance, but I mean the for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the It's funny and is really instructive to me, and I I think it is to all of us, is here is Samuel, one of the most spiritual men in the whole Bible, and yet he falls prey to determining a person's spirituality or their suitableness for this high office on the basis of their looks. He says, you can can tell a book by its cover. He looks at the outward and he says, that's all I need to know about this guy. That's the next king. You would think that after having already been through this thing with Saul, who is head and shoulders taller than everyone else, we're told he's the most handsome man in all of, of Israel, he would have looked and said, oh no, not another one of these. We've already been there, done that. Let's find a spiritual person, someone we we know who is really a spiritual person. Let's not go on the basis of looks. But he doesn't do it. You know what that tells me? I don't speak for you, but I speak for myself. It tells me that that tendency to judge on the basis of the outward appearance and come to very... uh, Deep conclusions that we should never come to on the about another person on the basis of the outward. That this is something that even the most spiritual of us are prone to, and we have to be careful of it. God rebukes him. We live in a culture that is very surface, where we look and think we we think we know something about somebody on the basis of the car they drive or the clothes that they wear, or their annual income, or um, how they present themselves, or their ability to speak, all of these things. And all of those things can just be something that hides, not always, but it can be something that hides a lack of depth or spirituality or greatness in a person's life. And I think it's a great warning to us in our own decision-making in life, and it certainly is to the leaders of any church, and that great tendency to sometimes look at a person outwardly and begin to promote into position or begin to assume spirituality on the basis of that without knowing the heart. The heart is everything. Is there a love for God inside of that handsome package that Eliah was? Is there, is, does, and, and, and that whole realization, God doesn't, doesn't care one bit about that outward appearance. He cares everything about the heart. And so he, he rebukes uh, Samuel even as he's sitting there and, and he's got all of this going on inside of, of his uh, mind. And you think about how many people are overlooked so often in, in the body of Christ for christian service for greatness for the kingdom because everybody's making decisions on the outward appearance rather than uh, upon the heart we'll talk about that a little bit later in the message and and so The Lord rebukes him uh, here of this. And Jesse then called, uh, so Jesse called uh, Abinadab, made him pass before Samuel. And uh, he said, Samuel said, No, the Lord hasn't chosen this one. So Jesse made uh, Shammah pass by, next oldest son, said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And and Samuel, at this point in time, has to think, oh boy, did I really hear God to come here and he's got a king? He's just rolled all of his sons out in front of me, Lord, and you haven't borne witness to a single one of them. Why is this ever embarrassing? And so Samuel said to Jesse, the father, are all the young men here? The interesting thing is that David is going to come forth, but he's so overlooked by even his father That his father wouldn't have called him to come to stand before Samuel unless Samuel had asked him the question. Talk about a guy that's overlooked not just by the society or by the city, he's overlooked completely by the family. And then Jesse says, there remains yet the youngest, and he is here keeping the sheep. And in essence, he's saying, listen, I mean, if you haven't seen anything you like in these other seven, you're not going to like what you see in this eighth one here. If they haven't moved you at all, this isn't going to move you. I don't know. We'll go get them for you, because that's what you're asking for. In fact, he's so low on the totem pole, we keep him out of the house and looking out for the sheep out there. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Samuel gets it. You see, the anticipation. We don't know how far they had to go out into the fields of Bethlehem to find the boy. But he said, Nobody sits down until we, that boy comes in. And so he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with bright eyes, and good looking. And the fact that he was ruddy, that means reddish so maybe it probably had a red complexion kind of rosy cheeks or whatever and uh, maybe even speaking of kind of a reddish tint to his uh, to his hair bright eyes literally means very beautiful eyes david had beautiful eyes you call it bright eyes when you're talking about a guy when you're talking about a woman it's they have beautiful eyes guys you know, they don't like to hear that stuff they have bright eyes and he was good looking in fact, in the, in the Hebrew, it, it indicates David was a very, very attractive man, young man. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. All the jaws drop in the whole family. And Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And so this, that would have been weird for them. And then as the oil was poured out on his... They don't anoint with oil like a little dab on the forehead like we do. I'm not putting that down. That's wonderful. If we poured, if we did oil like the Old Testament, it, you'd ruin your clothes every time. You get, they just poured it right on you, glub, 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 it was all over you. And so they poured the oil out on top of him. It was a symbol of the Spirit. The Spirit immediately came and, and did the spiritual reality that that was a physical representation of the Spirit of the Lord came upon David. From that day forward, and so Samuel arose and he went to Ramah Now one of the interesting things to me about this whole anointing uh, of uh, David here is is the fact that when he 's anointed uh, by oil, uh, nothing is said to david david doesn 't say a single thing to anyone. They just pour the oil over his head i 'm sure he understood you know what what it meant and all, but then uh, uh, Samuel just arises and he and he goes back home. I think that um, I think that it's very very important as we look at David as a great um, encouragement, especially to young people. Depending, on, obviously, he's a very he's very overlooked even within his family. And overlooked by, underestimated, overlooked by everyone but God. And here he is just doing the most, you know, menial task within the family and all, and yet God knew where he was the whole time. God knew his heart. I don't know how many people lived in Israel at that time. But God knew the inside and out of everyone, and there was a boy that loved to sing songs to him while he herded the sheep out in the field. And he said, when I've got to bring the next king, I know exactly who it is that I'm going to call to be the next king of Israel. I don't think a single Christian has to ever worry about being overlooked by God. Because you are in some obscure place, raised in some obscure city, in some obscure apartment complex, in some obscure uh, town, and some uh, holding some kind of an obscure job. God knows what's going on between you and Him. He knows your heart. The fields are white unto harvest. The labors are few. He never wastes a laborer. And he finds David and he calls David like he called so many people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. He called them while they were working. He wasn't in front of the television set or playing uh, video games or something like that. He, he, He was busy doing what he needed to do. And he had no idea in his life... That the greatest training that he could have ever had for the plan that God had for his life was herding sheep. That was a despised occupation in the ancient world. That's the people you gave to nobody to do. And yet he is going to become a shepherd to the greatest nation in the history of the world because the nation of Israel brought the Scriptures into the human condition and and, and into the world and also brought the Messiah, the Savior, into the world. And so here he is, just out there doing something like, I'm gonna do this the rest of my life, and I'm never gonna to amount to anything. And in one day everything changes. And one day he's out there doing all of that, and the next, and before the day ends, he's anointed the next king of Israel. Now he may regret it before it's all said and done for a little while, but that's how things go. God will find you. Jesus said, if we're faithful in the little things will be faithful in the big things. He knows that to be true. You be faithful in that school that God has put you in, in that workplace, neighborhood that He's put you in, that home that He's put you in. Let it do all of its work of preparation in your life. And God won't allow any of it to be wasted as you watch His plan unfold for your life. And so uh, Samuel arose and he went off uh, to Rama but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. So at the same time that the Holy Spirit comes upon David now anointed as the new king at the same time a distressing spirit from the Lord. Uh, clearly a demonic spirit that's allowed by the Lord now to uh, to uh, uh, distress Saul is released to do that, and he becomes tormented by it. Now, we have to be careful here to, uh, as we would look at this and say, oh no, I mean, here I am a Christian, and if I you know, mess up a little bit, is God going to take His Holy Spirit away from me, and I, and I end up a crazy person? No, we never want to grieve the Holy Spirit. We don't want to quench the Holy Spirit. But this is, in the Old Testament, the anointing of the Holy Spirit came upon people in order for them to accomplish a particular purpose for God under that old covenant. It was never an indication that they really knew God or they were saved or something like that. In the New Testament, once the Holy Spirit comes inside of our life because of our faith in Christ, then the Holy Spirit doesn't come and go and come and go, come and go, based upon how obedient we are or not. The Holy Spirit stays in our our lives, and if He needs to chasten us, then He will He will chasten us. And so here's a different covenant, a different situation, and uh, and Saul has despised the anointing of God. God gives us the anointing of the Holy Spirit to give us a power to be obedient to His Word. He doesn't care about obeying God's Word. So God just moves His Spirit and then allows a a distressing spirit to begin to trouble Him. Do you believe that there are people in this world that if we did not walk close to God, if it weren't for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we'd go crazy? I believe it. I believe the world can make... People insane, just the whole way the whole world operates, even apart from the demonic realm being actively involved. I tell you, Saul just does a terrible thing in making himself vulnerable to the demonic realm by disregarding obedience to the Lord. And so here he is, he's in this distressed. Uh, condition he's troubled and so Saul's servants said to him surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you and so they give a solution let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful a skillful player on the harp let us bring in some worship music here to play for you and it might be that as he plays it then um, uh, then the distressing spirit from God when it comes upon you, then you shall be well. Now, you got you gotta give these guys credit for trying. The ultimate solution for Saul's problem was repentance. But they're in a bit of a pickle because this guy's so unstable at this point in time they can't really walk up to him, probably in their minds, and say, Hey, listen, buddy, you gotta just repent and get right with God, and this whole thing clears up. He probably spears them at that point. So they're, going, they're willing to deal with symptoms rather than the cause. And they say, listen, we see you're really messed up by all of this. Maybe we could get someone to play some, bring in an, uh, someone that can play some music and it will soothe you during those times that this distressing spirit is, is upon you. And so Saul said to his servants, provide me now a man who can play well. He couldn't say, listen, I want you to go down to the music store or go on iTunes and download a bunch of worship music. The only way you are going to get music in those days was a live person coming into a room with a real instrument and playing it for you. So he's got to find somebody to do this. And so, he agrees to it. Provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. And then one of the servants answered and said, beautiful description of David. It gives you an idea of Of how people already saw greatness in him, even though overlooked by his family at such a young age. Look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and on top of that, the Lord is with him, which is all that really matters. (laughs) This is a fabulous description. Of David. And therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. And so David is uh, sent for. Now, I think that David is going to enter into this whole uh, kind of ministry of playing music and he's going to be effective in that way. I, I do think that one of the, mo- the best things that we can do in a time of spiritual warfare in our lives is, number one, the staying in the, the Word of God, the washing of water by the Word, for per- perspective, the reading of God's Word. And then number two, prayer. But right up behind those two things surely has to be keep the praise music Going in the car and at home, and have those things just so to our spirit. I don't think that David came in and said, "Hey, listen, what's the top forty going on here?" Casey, what's Casey Kasem? What's he counting down these days? Is he even around, by the way? <laughs> <He> probably is. <laughs> I am Casey Kasem, you know, counting them down. Here's the rap hit, you know, bang bang, bang, bang you know, Yo. So, so anyway, Casey said to David. But, so he's not going to go in there and just do this stuff. David has been singing songs about the Lord and to the Lord for years. And these psalms that he's already written at this point in his life. And, he, and, and no matter where Saul is in terms of what he's listening to, David, when he's playing these songs, I mean, he is playing as unto the Lord. Now, how, how tough would it be to be a demon in that room? the proverbial nails on the chalkboard. I think the devil hates worship music. And uh, so, clearly, this whole playing of the, of the worship here, it, it was uh, offensive to the demonic realm. It brought relief, and it also was an edifying influence upon Saul. And so, he was sent for, uh, send me your son David. He's the king. He can just demand it. And uh, who is with the sheep? And Jesse took a, a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, And he sent them by his son David to Saul. So as a sign of respect, he'd send a gift. And so David came to Saul and he stood before him. And he loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. So they hit it off uh, immediately. Saul liked what he saw in David. He does not know that David is his new rival uh, to the throne. And then Saul sent to Jesse saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. In other words, I just borrowed him at the beginning. Now I want him to become a permanent fixture here at my palace. And so it was, whenever the spirit of God was uh, from God was upon Saul that David would take a harp, play it with his hand, and then Saul would become refreshed, and the distressing spirit would uh, depart from him. Chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. And so, uh, to, to Judah, they inca- in encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes-damim. And so one of the things, this whole, we come to one of the greatest events in the Bible. I mean, almost everyone knows it, and it's one of the great stories that kids like, but it's got great lessons for adults too, and that is David's slaying of Goliath favorites in the Bible. We notice in verse 1 the location of where all of this happened. And we're told very, very specifically that the Philistines invade the land of Israel. So you've got the Philistines and their giant coming into territory that doesn't belong to them. They have no business being there. This belongs to Israel. And so they invade. It's an indication of how Saul is weakening as a king, because while he was a great warrior for Israel for many years... Um, In his kind of debilitated state here, the Philistines are becoming very, very aggressive now. They sense weakness, and so they begin to um, invade Israel. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up uh, in battle array against the Philistines. And so, just really a few miles um, southwest of The city of Jerusalem is this Elah Valley. It's one of the highlights of our stop and a trip to Israel. Very beautiful valley. And on either side of the valley are kind of high points. Uh, We wouldn't call them mountains. They'd be kind of hills for us. And uh, there was an Philistine army was on one uh, hill. And then the children of Israel... Over on another area of high ground, this great valley lying between them. And then right down the valley was a wadi, is to this day uh, a dry stream bed, except when it's flowing with winter rain, full of smooth stones. (laughs) Just perfect for... God set that whole thing up from after the flood. He so, all right, let's make sure we got something, because I'm going to do something really great a few thousand years down the line. We need at least five smooth stones. There are thousands of stones in that valley that are perfect for slinging. And so they, they drew up in, in a battle array, one on one side of the valley, the other on the other side of the valley. So neither of them has kind of... Both of each of them recognizes that they do not have... Uh, the either the numbers or the strength to decisively beat the other, and so neither wants to initiate the battle, and so uh, warfare and it, today and in the old days it's it's a bloody thing, it's a messy thing. You wanted to have the idea that you had a chance to win, and uh, and and you had an advantage, but neither of them really had an advantage, so they're kind of in a standoff. And so a champion, verse 4, went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from the city of Gath, a Philistine city, and his height was uh, six cubits in a span. This guy is nine feet nine inches tall. On the basketball court, he has to move his head or he hits the net. He can't jump, he'll hit the rim. Gigantic, nine feet, uh, nine inches tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, so he's got armor on. And uh, the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, at least 175 pounds of armor. Now, when you think of Goliath, don't think of a string beam. Don't think of an NBA center except for Shaquille. Or don't think of like a shooting forward in the NBA, some very lean greyhound. This guy is huge. To be able to carry around the weight of his weaponry and his armor, to walk around and to be able to fight with 175 to 200 pounds of armor, just, that's just your, the, the uh, sheet of, of mail here, not even talking about what, uh, what the armor on his legs and all. This guy's got to be five, 600 pounds. I mean, he could just take people and just start throwing them in all directions. Are you afraid of him yet? I'm afraid of him. In the natural. That's the whole idea here. And so he comes out, and he's got a bronze... Uh, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. I don't even know what a bron- how much a bronze javelin weighs. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, or 15 to 20 pounds. Ladies, you just grab those, or guys, grab those three three or four five-pound bags of sugar in your hands. And that that was the head on the spear that he could throw only God knows how far. Or just go find a turkey that weighs uh, 20 pounds in the spirit of of, uh, this part of the year. So this guy is not only big, he is... Buff. I mean, he is strong, and he had a shield there that went before him. So when this guy comes out, and, he, and we're going to find out he comes out every morning and every night for 40 days, he comes out in that morning sun, he comes out in that late afternoon sun, and when the children of Israel look at him, he looks like a 10-foot wall of fire. Okay, I'm frightened now. As if it couldn't be worse, he talks. (laughs) And then he stood and he cried out to the armies of Israel. So he's taunting them. And he said, why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come out to me. And if he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Well, that's a little one-sided. I mean, these are the offers that you make when you have a ten-foot giant who is very seasoned in war. It wasn't uncommon in the ancient world, again, warfare being mostly hand-to-hand combat and and very, very messy. Uh, affair, that uh, there would be a representative of each of two armies that would come out, fight with one another, and the winner of that one-on-one battle would then be determined, would would then be uh, considered the the victor of of the battle instead of fighting the battle. And so these are the, the kind of terms that he offers. And then the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together, you bunch of chickens, you yellow bellies. Okay, I'm reading a little bit into it, but what you got going on here is just pure trash-talking psychological warfare. Probably has a degree in psychology. Now, you, you watch, sometimes you watch the fights on TV or something like that, the boxing things, and they're just looking at each other, you know, the whole deal, and, and they've got the, the weigh-in and the whole thing, and everybody's trying to psych each other out. Well, they did the same thing in battle, too. So, this is a psych job. He's trying to intimidate the children of Israel. But he really is, he is humiliating the men. If you've got a man over there, send him on out so that I can have somebody to fight. Well, the effect had the effect that he he suspected that it would have. Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words uh, of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. That word dismayed is an interesting one in the Hebrew. It means to be broken mentally. It means to be completely disabled. They looked at this giant out there, And and who he was, what he was, his armor, his weapons, and it just broke them mentally. Nobody could even think in their mind that we could ever defeat this giant. Or that anyone in their right mind would go out to fight that giant. Now David, (laughs) speaking of someone who would, was the son of that Ephraimite of Bethlehem Judah, whose name was Jesse, who had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years at this time in the days of Saul. And the three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul uh, to the battle. So they're a part of this terrified group out there. And the names of the three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. And David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But occasionally, David occasionally went and he returned from Saul to feed his father's flock at Bethlehem, so that worship thing wasn't a full-time deal that he was doing. And so uh, he he returned to Bethlehem, and the Philistine drew near, we are told, and presented himself uh, 40 days, morning and evening. And then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves and run to your brothers at the camp. Now, you say, why in the world would he mention the fact that the Philistine uh, in this giant came out 40 days, 40 nights, uh, taunting them twice a day. Why at that place not instead of not bringing it up at the time when he's bringing up the armor and the weaponry and all of that usually in those days uh and two armies came together the battles were pretty quick you knew who the victor was pretty quick it was very unusual to have a 40-day standoff and they didn't have like uh, uh you know people that were Uh, making food for them and that kind of thing so they probably came to fight the Philistines to stop this intrusion into the land and now they're dependent because it's taking so long they're dependent on their families and others to supply them with food while this standoff continues and so here is the father doing what a father is going to do wants to make sure that the boys are fed he also sent David to carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand their commanding officer We want to make sure he's in a good mood. He's going to send my boys into battle, look out after them. That's what dads do. And third thing that was behind it was to go and find out how the brothers were doing and bring back some news of them. Of course, every... Uh, military mom and dad they understand exactly where uh, Jesse is here in all of this just want some news make sure to know everyone's alright now Saul uh, and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting the Philistines and so David rose early in the morning to leave Bethlehem to go over to the battle I mean here he is as a young guy alright we've got, we got a battle going on over there he wants to check it out so he left the sheep with the keep He took the things and he went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. Now, it doesn't mean they were ready to engage in battle. It just means that at some point, apparently, each day, both of the armies would line up on either side of the battle and they'd shake their weapons and they'd shout and insult one another, again, trying to intimidate one another. And so David shows up at this point in, in time, shouting for the battle, for Israel and the Philistines had drawn in battle array, army against army. David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, and then he ran to the front lines to the army, and he came and he greeted his brothers. And then as he talked with them, there was the champion. Talk about perfect timing. And so Goliath then begins to uh, come out into the middle of of the field, Goliath by name, coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. And so uh, David heard them. So he gives them the same speech that he's been giving them for 40 days, just repeats the thing all over again. Everybody there is hearing it for the 40th time. David hears it for the very first time. And all the men of Israel when they saw the man they fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. And so the men of Israel said, "Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills uh, the man who kills him the king will enrich with great riches will give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel." Forget about the riches and the wife, exemption from taxes in Israel. Where do I sign up? So, you know, I mean, in, in uh, yeah, easy for me to say. I see single guys over here say, so, "Give me the wife." I'm married, so and and wonderfully so, by the way, blessed. I didn't want that to go the wrong way. She knows she won't be offended in any way. <laughs> so anyway. Where am I in this Bible here? On this thing, this story here. So it gives a whole. Thing. I mean, let's make a deal. You got you got to choose between the three doors. Three, three. They get all three doors. This is just a tremendous offer that's being made. Saul is desperate to find anyone that will go out and fight against this uh, this Goliath. And so then David he spoke to the men who stood by him and said, now. What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? And, and so he, he, he listens to it and he just wants to make sure they're not pulling his leg because he's a young guy. So now, now, what, now what are the, what's the offer here? What can, he's not so much interested in in the material blessings of all of it. You notice, uh, for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Time out in verse 26. Something new is entered into the camp of Israel that hasn't been there for 40 days and 40 nights. It is the first mention of God in the entire uh, event that's unfolding here. David is the first one to come on the scene and make uh, mention of the Lord. He's the first one who doesn't feel... Uh, uh, fear related to what's happening here. When he heard, saw that giant come out, he heard what that giant said. This was an affront to him. This was an insult to him. This was a shame to him for the nation of Israel that this guy... He's a defier. He is a blasphemer. He is an uncircumcised Philistine. He has no covenant with God. And he comes out for 40 days and 40 nights and says this stuff in front of God and everyone. It incensed him. All right, we've got a new person on the scene. He's just a kid. You take faith where you can find it. And so he comes on and he is clearly upset by all of this. The interesting how when he speaks of the Lord here, he refers to him as the living God. That tells me something important about David. I don't know what David knew and didn't know about the Lord. He knew a lot about the Lord. We'll see in just a minute. One thing he knew about his God is he knew his God was alive. And when you know your God is alive, that produces a, a certain quality of life. You process life in a different way than when you just kind of believe some things but you don't know that he's alive. David knew he was alive. He had a long history with God out in those fields with those sheep singing praises to the Lord, composing songs to the Lord. So he looks at this thing and says, this scene that I'm looking at right now, this does not add up for people who have a God that's alive. So he's incensed by, by the whole deal that, that is going on, mentions the Lord uh, for the very first time. And so Eliab, the people answered him in this manner, saying, this is what's going to be done for the man who kills him. They repeat the three things that would be uh, given to him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab, he was angry, angry against David and he said why did you come down here and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness I know your pride and the insolence of your heart for you've come down to see the battle David you're not a soldier you don't know anything about soldiering the most you can ever hope for in terms of your life is to look after those few sheep back there. That's as, that's as much responsibility as going to be handed over to you. And, and here you are. Who are you to come in and criticize the, it, it, us and declare that our conduct here before this giant is unworthy of our God? And, you, and without a doubt, Eliab's, he, he, he is stung with conviction related to his own cowardice. Uh, here And so he rebukes uh, David. And I think that here, as David is going to fight a couple of battles uh, long before he fights Goliath on that field. That anyone that's going to live a life like David and be used by God in the way that God uses David, doesn't have to be in this grand of a fashion, however the Lord might use us. Every one of us has to fight through the same things. And here, here is the first battle he faced. That if he didn't win this battle, he was never ever going to face Goliath and defeat him. And that was with his family. They did not see David and see in him what God saw in David. So they esteemed him lightly. Who are you? Who do you think you're going to be? What do you think that you're going to be? Though they came, he came from the same family, they knew nothing about him spiritually. They knew nothing about his relationship with God. The depth of it is faith in God. And so he had to take and overcome the fact, as Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own household. And sometimes a family can put severe limits in the thinking of a child in terms of how God is going to use them, can mock their step of faith that they're taking, the vision that they have for God, the passion that they have for God. And you've got to bust through that and obey God and not allow other people, even family members, to put limitations on what God might do through you and will do through you. And then David said, What have I done now? Now remember, he's the youngest of eight sons. He probably said that just about every day. What have I done now? What have I done now? So he just says it once again. He said, what what have I done now? Is there not a cause? He declares himself innocent of the charges. What I am declaring here and what I am saying here is based in reality what we've all just seen. Don't, ch- don't charge me with cowardice it, 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 or with uh, not knowing what I'm talking about and sending me home. Uh, th- this, is, uh, this is how this, all of this should have been met. And then he turned from him toward another. He then begins to speak to all the soldiers that are around him and he said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, They reported them to Saul, and Saul sent for him. Hey, we got somebody out here. (laughs) Uh, He's a little short, a little shrimpy guy, you know, with a red complexion and kind of auburn hair and stuff. But I mean, uh, we're at forty days now. You might want to give him a look. So Saul sends for him to come. And David said to Saul, "Now, just listen to this. I mean, just if you were a fly on the wall. But here we got it's better it's in the Bible." David said to Saul, walks into the king of Israel, let no man's heart fail him because of this giant. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. How beautiful is that? This is beautiful faith. And it's even more beautiful when it comes from you. He comes into that, and I mean, he, he is, there's no self-consciousness about himself or his limitations or anything like that. It is, it's like he's got a big S on his chest. He just walks into the tent, says, listen, our problems are over. I'm here. <laughs> I love it. I mean, God really responds to faith like that. The interest, well, we'll save that. And Saul said to David... You are not able, where you send these kids in here? You are not able to fight against, to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth. He's been fighting l- longer than you've been alive. You see how big he is? You see his armor? You see his weapons? It's not. You hear all of his taunts? That He's a trash talker from way back. This isn't something new. But he's not kidding. He can back all that up. This guy's killed a lot of people, David. David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and I struck it. You want to talk about hand-to-hand combat? And I delivered the lamb from its mouth and when it arose against me, I grabbed it by the beard and I struck and killed it. I've done that to a lion and I've done that to a bear. The beautiful thing is is that David recognizes that what God, again, he looks back on, he looks back on his history, he's not willing to allow all these great things that God has done in, in his past to just be something that he brags about for the rest of his life. He recognizes that in all of that, his faith has been developed now for this hour to go against Goliath. And I think when we hit those places where God is calling us and giving David the kind of faith here. David knew that Goliath is on the wrong side of God's declaration to Abraham. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. He knows the guy's cursed. is who's going to stand up to him. And, and so here he is with, with uh, uh, all of this thing going on. And he recognizes, and it's a wonderful, I think, gift of faith that God gives us when He calls us to take a step of faith like this to remind us of how faithful He's been all along. That we're not going into something like this without a history with God. And, and I think that anytime time God calls us to do the next big thing that we would be tempted to look and say, what in the world... It's a time to stop and to look and say, Lord, show me how you've been preparing my faith all along for this greater thing. And that's what he does. Again, God does these great things in our lives, not just so we'll be in the coffee shop at 85 years of age and telling them the story once again about the bear and about the lion. But because God knows that a giant, a bigger thing is coming down the the road, and all of this is to develop our faith so that we will handle that in a godly way, in a way that that looks like faith. And so this is how David saw it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine, he's, he's he's, he's a thief like the bear and the lion coming in wanting to take what doesn't belong to him at all. He's going to be like one of them, seeing that he has uh, defied the armies of the living God. And moreover, David said, the Lord, and notice Lord is in all caps, it's Yahweh, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion. I've got a history with God, Saul. And from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David knew two things about God. He knew, as he describes him, he's a living God. My God is a life. I know that about my God. I talked with him this morning. I walk and I talk with him along life's narrow way. The second thing that he knew about the Lord is that he is Yahweh. He is the great I am. He is the one that becomes what we need him to become in whatever situation that we're in, whether it's lion, whether it's bear, whether it is a giant. He knew that about God. I know I have a history with him. I have to walk into the situation he calls me to walk into, and he will be whatever I need him to be in that situation. That's the source of his faith, Is, is, is he's looking at, at, at Goliath. God will do to this guy that's trying to take what doesn't belong to him, what he's done with a lion and bear. Saul said to David, Go and the Lord be with you. He got some God talk out of Saul. Faith is contagious. Fear is contagious, but faith is contagious too. And David comes on, and now he's got, he's got Saul talking about the Lord is the great I Am. And so Saul clothed David with his armor, and uh, apparently Saul didn't want to go out to battle, but he wanted his armor out there. And so he put a bronze helmet on his head, and so he clothed him with a coat of mail, and uh, David fastened his sword on to his armor. He tried to walk, but he had not tested him. You ever see those pictures like a Norman Rockwell thing or something, and you got this boy trying on his dad's suit? Those pants are all over. the coat goes down to his ankles and all. This is what David looks like. Saul's a giant in his own right, six foot six anyway, maybe taller, six foot nine. And so this, this armor on this younger man or this young, — and he's a young man, probably you know, 15, 16 years old anyway. And uh, so uh, here, here he, he puts it on. He can't even walk. And so he said to Saul, I can't walk with these for I haven't tested them. And so David, he took them off. And it's one of the great ministry lessons in all of the Bible. And, and that is when God calls you and I to do whatever He calls you and I to do, we need to be ourselves. We need to fight with the weapons that He's given us to fight with the weapons that we've gained a confidence in because of our history with God, and none of us can ever be successful in battle, even in spiritual battle, wearing somebody else's armor. And there's always that great tendency to take and, and for those in positions of authority and leadership, and sometimes we're willing to do it to ourselves, to want to wear somebody else's armor. And it never, ever works. God called David to do this and David needed to be himself, his sanctified self, in, in this uh, situation. And so... He, uh, David took them off and he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. So he goes out there in the middle of things there, finds the, the brook there in the Elah Valley. There are so many stones there. How many people have brought them home to people from you know a trip to Israel? It's wonderful. He took five stones, he put them in a shepherd's bag, in a pouch which he had, and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. So people look and say, well, well, what kind of faith did he have? He took five stones. He only really needs one. If he really had faith, he'd, he'd just have one stone. What are you talking about? But anyway, so the interesting thing is elsewhere in the Bible, we read that Goliath had four brothers. He doesn't know whether he's going to take Goliath out and these four are going to come out of the crowd and he's got to take out the other four with him. So he takes five five stones here and uh, then drew near to the Philistine. And so the Philistine came and he began drawing near to David. The man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about, he's looking for the man that they're going to send out, and he saw David. And this really bugged him. He disdained him. Because he's only a youth, ready, and good-looking. What are you sending, choir boys out here to fight me? I mean, it was really an offense. This guy's proud. Come on, give me a big guy to kill. Ah, So the Philistine, again, he's a trash talker, and he said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And so David's probably got his shepherd's stick and all, and and he said, are you going to come out here and club me like a little dog? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And uh, again, trying to psych David out. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and a javelin, and nobody can miss the size of them, by the way. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. The God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You're big, big fella. You are well armed, but you are not bigger than my God. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you. He's telling him his history in advance here. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you, I will take your head from you, and this day I'll give the carcasses of the entire camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that I am there as uh, that there is a God in Israel, then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. No trash talk here. He is letting everybody know. And I mean, the the army is lined up on one side, lined up on the other side. There is Goliath out in the middle of this valley. There is David out in the middle of this valley. Everybody's eyes are like Marty Feldman eyes. They are glued to this thing. If you don't know who it is, don't worry about it. But big old eyes, they're listening to everything that's being said here. And what David does comes out and he just pronounces and, and just declares praise to the greatness of his God so that when God does what he does, the whole world is going to know that the Lord has done it. And so it was was after hearing this, this really apparently upset the Philistine Goliath. And he arose, all right, I'm going to take your head off, you kid. And he came and he drew near to meet Goliath. All right, let's go at it. And then he saw something he'd probably never seen in his whole life, and that is to see somebody run toward him. David hurried, and he ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. He comes running at Goliath. And David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, put it into his sling, and he slung it like that. And it struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. He didn't have any armor right there. There isn't enough armor in the world to protect you when God's going to take you out like that. So, that, that thing, and he never even saw it coming. I mean, he thinks he's gonna get clubbed by a stick. David hurls this stone. He hears, is that a, do you hear a whistling in the, in the air? <laughs> <laughs> it gets hit, and then it tells us right, he fell over on his face to the earth. That would hurt, except he was already dead. Yeah, I mean, just this gigantic thump as he hits the ground. Five, six hundred pounds. Boom! He hits the earth. And so David prevailed. There's no battle. The battle was over in a moment. And David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in in the hand of David. And therefore David ran, and he stood over the Philistine, took Goliath's sword, drew it out of uh, its sheath, never even got it out of the, the sheath, and he killed him, and he cut off his head with it. Now, I, I remember teaching on this uh, years ago, and I said, man, that's a guy I could follow into battle. I like David a lot. I like strong leaders. And if you're going to go into battle, I, you know, I, I would, that I, in any area of life, I would want to follow strong leadership into a life-and-death uh, situation. Somebody, somebody wrote me a letter and said, what kind of music, movies are you watching that would... Cause you to enjoy this kind of thing. I enjoy this kind of thing. It's right there in the Bible. Now why did he cut his head off? Because he hits this guy with a stone, but the armies are way on either side of all of this. They see Goliath fall, but they don't know that he's dead yet. When David raised his head and held it up real high for everyone, it was a confirmation of a kill. And so everybody knew now, and the Philistines, now is their opportunity for Mel- Marty Feldman eyes. And, uh, and so it, they, when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they started to run. So much for this bargain, right? And so the children of Israel, they used the opportunity to Um, "...defeat their enemy here and, and use it to its fullest, the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road." Uh, to Shaaraim, even as far as Gath and Ekron. And then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their tents. And so they drove the Philistines back further on the basis of David's victory than Saul ever did in his reign. We've already seen the favor of David uh, upon his life being demonstrated even as a young, a young man here before the children of Israel. David took the head of the Philistine. He might be going a little too far here. And he brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. So he holds on to that head as kind of a trophy for a little while. I doubt he did for very long. That would begin to smell. But he, but he was very excited about what God had done. It was a witness to the faithfulness of God. He had done some sanctified boasting in God based upon God's promise to Abraham, I'll bless those that bless you and I'll curse those that curse you. Even if there's only one that will make a stand. And so he, he's still feeling the afterglow of the greatness of his God. And he put his armor in his tent. And when Saul saw David go out, going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the armor, Abner, Abner, Whose boy is this youth? Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I don't know. And so the king said, Inquire whose son this young man is. And then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And so David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now, the interesting thing is you look and you say, why in the world wouldn't Saul recognize David if he's been playing that harp uh, or some kind of an instrument there in his palace for all that uh, length of time? Saul does not ask Abner or David, what's your name? He knows what David's name is. He asks very specifically, what is the name of your father? He's a king. He doesn't remember David's father's name or any of that kind of stuff. He's got a lot of details that he's thinking about in life. And so he's reminded here, I'm the son of Jesse. Why would that be of interest to him? Because he had made a promise to the one that killed this giant that he would give him riches, give him his daughter as wife, and then also give him exemption from taxes. So he knows this is his new son-in-law. And so he wants to know who's going to be marrying into the family. So in this passage, we have this beautiful, this record of this miraculous defeat of a great giant. And I just want to take another probably two minutes to just apply this to our own lives, because the application is just huge. Sometimes we just look at it and we say, wow, that's a great story out of the Old Testament. But it. It applies to our lives here today as God's people. And I think that the reason that this passage is so instructive for us as Christians is that the fact of the matter is that all of us are going to face giants in life. That's just the way that it is. Just situations and circumstances that outstrip our resources, and the only resources they don't outstrip is God's resources. And the giants that we face in life are real. Medical diagnosis that we didn't want to hear. A job loss in the worst economy in 30 years. A problem, difficulty in raising a child. Difficulty of being a Christian child to parents who are not walking with the Lord. There's all kinds of giants that we face in life. And that's just the reality. That's just the way that it is. These things that, as we look at them in the natural, in our own eye, they terrify us, they dismay us. They they it completely break our spirit when we hear the news or we look at at the circumstances. Then the giants when they just come out, they trash talk in the spiritual realm. They beat down the Holy Spirit inside of our own life, and and they they just refuse to be ignored. They use up all of the air, all of the oxygen in the room, and it's just life dominating kind of trials. And then, on top of all of it, the devil decides to pile on until finally we look at the situation and we say that it is completely hopeless. Now, how did David defeat this giant? He did it by operating in the situation based upon faith rather than fear. So, all right, I get that. That helps me a little bit, but it sounds. Um, I can't really get my mind uh, around that. So he operated on the basis of faith rather than fear. But what was the key to his faith? He judged the circumstance that he was in in the light of the power and the promises of God. Rather than coming to conclusions about the power and the wisdom of God based upon the circumstances, he ran his grid was he ran life through how big he knew his God to be and what he knew his God to be. God did not become a dwarf because he looked at his God through the greatness of his, his circumstances. And this is what made David altogether different from Saul and all of the men of Israel because all they could see in that situation was ten feet of Goliath. He comes out morning and evening, that's all they can see. Their heart, their mind, their soul, their strength is completely dominated by a ten foot wall of fire that is mocking them and is blaspheming their God. David comes onto the same scene and he looks above the nine plus feet, to the God who fills all of the universe that reigns over everything and the description of the whole scene is one where the armies of Israel completely paralyzed by this giant, again, their eyes, their ears, their heart, completely dominated by his greatness, his weaponry, his size, paralyzing them in fear, David's altogether different from the men around him, he's the only one in the entire scene that looks above the ten feet to God and processes the whole scene in the light of the greatness of God. We have an old saying in the body of Christ when the outlook looks bad, try the uplook. And we forget that. And David does the uplook. One of the most beautiful things, and Jesus, of course, has done so many beautiful things, but one of the most beautiful things that Jesus has done to keep us from being dominated by these kind of giants as, as Christians, He did when His disciples came to Him and said, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? And Jesus said, after this manner, pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In the prayer that Jesus has given us to model our prayer life after on a daily basis, the very first line of it lifts our gaze and our attention off of the greatness and difficulty of the circumstances that we are in, lifts it above that ten feet and lifts it to God Almighty who is over all. I happen to use that prayer as a model for my daily prayer life. I tell you, after all of these years, to this day, in, in the morning when I say, Our Father, which art in heaven, Immediately, there's this gigantic relief that comes over me. It physically impacts me. It mentally impacts me. It emotionally impacts me. It spiritually impacts me. Because now I am processing life in the light of the greatness of God, rather than being driven and dominated by the circumstances of this world. No one is the same before Praying that line to God, if I'm current and connected with God when I'm praying it, as we, uh, uh, that we are, we're no one's the same after as they were before they prayed it. And the Lord knew that we we're going to face these kind of giants and circumstances, and that we would on a daily basis, and we would need this daily reminder of the greatness of our God. And so, where did this faith come from? It came from. His head being lifted up above the circumstances to the greatness of his God. And Jesus has laid the same thing out for that to be a daily reality in each and every one of our lives. That's what develops faith in our lives. That's a practical lesson to take away from the passage. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for all the lessons that are found in David's life here and we've studied tonight. We thank you for the greatness of his faith and his victory over this giant. We thank you for how you demonstrated your power through his life. And what a joy it is to be able to read this, Lord. And it really encourages us. And I just pray and we just pray for one another that as we would lift up our prayers to you each day, our Father, which art in heaven, that you would produce the same kind of perspective and the same kind of faith and holy zeal, Lord, in each one of our lives as we face the greatness of the giants that come against us each and every day in this modern world that we live in, Lord, that we're endeavoring, to live for You and for Your glory. Thank You for the lesson of this passage. And we thank You tonight, Lord, in the name of the One who has made it possible, the One who has made it possible for us to be able to call You Father and to know You that way. We give You praise. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.